It is very good to be here today and to be able to worship God and to study his word together. And we are so thankful for the opportunity, thankful for the presence of each one. Those of you who are visiting with us, we want you to know that we are uh, delighted that you've chosen to come here this morning and to worship with us. And we hope that you'll find a warm welcome here. And if there's some way maybe that we could assist you or maybe there's some questions that we could answer about the church or about Uh, who we are or what we do, then we would be very happy to do that. We're studying the Bible this morning, and of course, I think probably most of us are familiar with the fact that the Bible is among the most purchased books in the history of the world. It is read by uh, millions of people. It is accessible in hundreds of different languages, electronic formats and written formats. And though many people, millions of people, have access to the Bible and read it, it continues to be one of the most misunderstood books or pieces of literature that have ever existed uh, throughout the history of the world. There was an article that was written in 2011 by a Lutheran minister by the name of David Loesch, and his article was titled, Four Good Reasons Not to Read the Bible Literally. I want to share those reasons with you as we begin this morning. His first reason is that nowhere does the Bible claim to be an errant. He says nowhere does the Bible claim to be factually accurate in claims of science or claims of history or claims of geography or anywhere else. And he even mentioned 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, and he suggested that that passage can be understood without claiming inerrancy. His second reason is that in his terms, reading the Bible literally distorts its witness. And what he means by that is that you just miss the point. He points to passages that he perceives to be inconsistencies in God's word, like, for example, turning uh, Jesus turning over the tables of the money changers at the beginning of his ministry, as it's recorded in the book of John, but him doing so in the days leading up to his crucifixion, as it is recorded in the books of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. His third reason is that he says most Christians across history have not read the Bible literally. He references Augustine and how he was hesitant to convert to Christianity until he was introduced to an allegorical interpretation of Jonah. And whenever he uh, was introduced to this allegorical interpretation of Jonah, then he was prepared to take the Bible seriously, but never Uh, literally. He goes on to say that earlier Christians simply didn't imagine that for something to be true, it had to be factually accurate. Here's his fourth reason. He says, because reading the Bible literally undermines the chief confession of the Bible about God. He says that the Bible was written by ordinarily Uh, ordinary and fallible people. And to take it literally then denies the fact that uh, the Bible says God chose ordinary people to write it. And so the idea is that a literal interpretation assumes perfection, which the Bible never claims for itself. So if you put those four together, here's what we have. 
that we shouldn't take the Bible literally or read it literally because the Bible never claims to be an errant. Because if we do so, that it just misses the point. Because most Christians through history never have taken it literally. And if we read the Bible literally, then that undermines what the Bible says chiefly and primarily about God. Now you may stop and think that what he has to say is maybe unique to him and that those ideas belong only to him, but unfortunately that would be, that would be incorrect. If you were to go through a bookstore and you were to read through the religious section, or if you were just to get on the internet and look at uh, different articles and things that have been written, what you're going to find is that there are a number of people, even who claim to, to fall under the banner of Christianity, who have views of the Bible that are very similar, if not identical, to the views that uh, we've just mentioned from this article. Now, the question that I want us to consider this morning is, what in the world should we do with this? What do we make of it? He talks about reading the Bible literally. Should we read the Bible literally? And more to the point, what exactly does it mean, read the Bible literally? What about inspiration? He made claims about inspiration and how the Bible never claims to be inerrant or inspired. What about that? What about contradictions which so many people assume to exist throughout the pages of God's word? Are they really there and how are we to work through those things? I want us to stop this morning and consider some of these questions because the answer to them determines how we should read and how we should view and apply and understand the Bible. So let's start here. Let's define the word literal. The question that we're considering this morning is, should we read the Bible literally? And that, of course, was the title of the article by Mr. Loesch. Should we read the Bible literally? Well, what exactly do you mean by literally? The word literal, according to the New Oxford American Dictionary, means this. It means taking uh, taking words in their usual or most basic sense without metaphor or allegory. Taking words in their usual or most basic sense without metaphor and without allegory. Now here's the thing. According to that definition, the answer is no, we should not read the Bible, every word of the Bible, literally. But you already knew that. Here's why. Jesus says in John 10 and verse number 9, I am the door. But Jesus is not actually a piece of wood with a handle and hinges. Jesus said in John 10 and verse number 11, I am the good shepherd, but Jesus is not currently tending a field of sheep with a shepherd's staff. The psalmist said in Psalm 22 and verse 6, I am a worm and no man, but David didn't literally mean that he was a worm. Jesus said in Matthew 13, 3, Behold, a sower went out to sow. And while it is true that there were and still are sowers who go out and sow their seed, We know that Jesus was in the midst of giving a parable, and so he was using an illustration that had to do with a comedy event that everyone knew about. So he wasn't necessarily thinking about an actual literal sower. He was speaking in generic terms. You see, we know that when we read the Bible, the Bible is made up of all kinds of different types of literature, and so it's full of metaphors and similes and parables and illustrations and word pictures of all different kind This figurative language, the Bible is full of figurative language. So whenever someone says, 
Do we read every word of the Bible literally? Well, the answer to that question certainly has to be no, because we recognize that there are some words in the Bible that are intended not to be taken literally, but rather figuratively. But figurative language communicates meaning that is true and can be comprehended. And so while it is the case that the Bible uses different kinds of language and words and pictures and things that are not necessarily to be understood in a literal way, even those word pictures are absolutely true word for word. Some words of the Bible are indeed to be taken literally. That's without question. But some words, like David saying, I am a worm and no man, are obviously figurative and they are communicating a meaning and that meaning is absolutely true. It is true that Jesus is the door. It is true that Jesus is the good shepherd. It is true that sowers sow seed and that Christians are to sow the seed of the kingdom, which is the meaning of the parable. So let's stop and think about the question for a moment. The question, should we read the Bible literally, usually is posed as an objection that is clothed or disguised as a legitimate inquiry. Often when people ask the question, it is an attempt to get around, say, the creation account, to allegorize the creation account. You believe in science and the Bible, they may say. Well, then you must not take the Bible literally because it says that God created the world in, uh, in uh, six days and that the world is not billions of years old. Usually the question is an attempt to get around something that God says. I don't like the fact that Jonah is described as a historical account. It challenges me. So therefore, I'll reject it as historical and I'll suppose that it's allegorical. Or maybe I don't appreciate God's law on marriage and divorce. Or maybe I don't like what God says about sexual immorality. Or maybe I don't like what God says about drinking alcohol or some other kind of thing. And so, therefore, my approach to God's word is, well, it's not to be taken literally, it's to be taken metaphorically. Listen, every word of scripture is true. Every word of scripture is reliable. And every word of scripture is authoritative. And the question about whether or not we should take the Bible literally is often, often really an objection that is disguised as a legitimate inquiry. So we recognize that as we study God's word, that there are different processes, that there are strategies that we have to import, that we have to apply. We refer to it usually as hermeneutics, which is just a fancy word that means the science of interpretation. And as we read God's word then, we take into account what part of God's word we're reading. So if we're reading from the book of Psalms, we know that we're reading poetry. And so therefore we have to understand that we apply rules that apply to poetry. If we're reading the book of Acts, we know that we're reading history. And so we apply rules that apply to reading history. If we're reading Revelation, we know that we're looking at apocalyptic language. And so therefore we apply rules then that uh, would have to do with interpreting and understanding apocalyptic or figurative language. This is all, for the most part, common sense. Now, how do, we, how do we do that? How do we apply hermeneutics, the science of interpretation? How, what are the principles and precepts that we put into practice? That's another sermon for another time. 
But here's the thing that I want us to spend the rest of our time on this morning. We recognize that every word of the Bible is true and reliable and every word is authoritative and it all has meaning, both the literal words and the words that are to be taken in a fi- or understood in a figurative way. Now, why is it the case that they all are, li- are true and reliable and authoritative and that we're to respect all of them? Why is that? Let me suggest a couple of things to you. Number one, it's because the Bible is inspired. We've talked about this a few times over the last few months, but I want to approach it maybe from a different vantage point than how we've looked at it the last couple of times we've, we've uh, explored it. We recognize that the Bible is a single volume that is composed of 66 books. It is written by approximately 40 different human authors inspired of the Holy Spirit in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, on three different continents over a time span of about 1,500 years. It would be reasonable then to expect that if these authors were writing the words of God, that they would claim to be writing them. It would be reasonable that if the authors of the Bible were writing the words of God, that not only they would claim to be writing them, but also the word of God would bear these markers or these indicators, these characteristics that would either prove it to be true beyond any shadow of doubt or would easily prove it to be false. We should recognize, first of all, that the Bible absolutely does claim to be inspired. In fact, over 2,700 times throughout the Bible, both Old and New Testaments, the Bible claims inspiration. For example, in 2 Samuel 23 and verse number 2, David said, The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was in my tongue. 2 Samuel 23 and verse 2. That is a claim of inspiration. Isaiah 51 and verse 16, And I have put my words in your mouth. That's God speaking to Isaiah. That is a claim of inspiration. In the New Testament, Paul said, For I receive from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. That's 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 23. That is an inspiration claim. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse number 15. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. Over and over again. Remember, over 2,700 times in both the Old and the New Testament, the writers of the Bible said, What I am writing is not of me, but rather it is of God. In fact, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 and 21, Peter said, No prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. It's a strange translation, but the meaning of that is this, that no word of Scripture originated within the minds of the men who wrote them. But rather, he says, holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. No word of Scripture originated in the minds of the men who wrote it, but rather they all were moved or inspired by the Holy Spirit. It may interest you to note that not only does the Bible claim inspiration for itself a number of times, but also the writers of the Bible often referred to other parts of Scripture and they legitimized the inspiration and the authority of those other parts of Scripture. For example, in your New Testaments, you could look at Matthew chapter 22, verse 41 to 46. 
And in Matthew 22, verse 41 to 46, what you will find is that there is an exchange between Jesus and the Pharisees, and Jesus quotes Psalm 110 in verse number 1. He refers to that passage as being Scripture, and he also makes clear that that Scripture, that passage of Scripture, is a messianic prophecy that is, uh, that is written in reference to him. Then you could go to your New Testament, 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 18. In 1 Timothy 5 and verse 18, Jesus or Paul says, For the scripture says, You will not muzzle the ox who treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his hire. In 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 18, what the apostle Paul has done is he has taken Deuteronomy 25 and verse 4 and Luke 10 and verse 7. And he has combined them together in one passage. And what does he say about both of them? He says that they are scripture. 1 Timothy 5 and verse 18. So the Bible claims to be inspired. There's no question about that. In fact, other Bible writers and speakers that are recorded in scripture, they often refer to those other places in the Bible and they quoted them and they they solidified their inspiration. Peter in 2 Peter chapter 3 verses 15 and 16, he referred to the Apostle Paul as our brother and the writings of the Apostle Paul as scripture and he acknowledged the difficulty of some of those scriptures. Yet note that he recognizes their inspiration. Now here's a question that should be asked. What exactly do you mean by inspiration? Did you notice at the beginning of our lesson when we were referencing those reasons from Mr. Lose why we shouldn't take the Bible literally, he talked about the inspiration of the Bible. And he talked about 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. All scripture is inspired of God. And he said that nowhere does the Bible claim to be an errant and that we can understand that passage uh, apart from being inerrant. So the question then is, well, how in the world can we have something to be inspired and also have errors? That doesn't make a lot of sense. Well, it depends on how you define inspiration. You see, there are a number of different theories about inspiration, like this one. We might call it the general inspiration theory. And this refers to the type of inspiration that would be attributed to maybe a poet or a writer like Shakespeare or Homer. The idea is that the writer has exceptional ability and they have this great idea and they write this masterful work. They're inspired in that sense, but it's all of human origin. There's another theory. We might call it the Bible contains the word of God theory, which means that there are some parts of the Bible that are the words of God, but that is mixed with myths and traditions and various other kinds of things. There's another theory of inspiration that we would call the theme or general thought theory, which is the idea that God spoke to the writers of the Bible and he gave them a theme or he gave them a thought and said, I want you to write about this, but then he left it up to, the, up, left it up to them to flesh it out. But what the Bible actually says about itself and his own inspiration according to 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, is that it contains what we would call verbal plenary inspiration. Look at that passage for a moment. We'll talk about what that means. 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16 and 17. 
Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired of God. The word all means every. And the word inspired means literally breathed, God breathed or breathed out. So when we say verbal plenary inspiration, the word verbal means words. We're talking about the words. Exodus 24 and verse number 4, Moses wrote down the words of the Lord. Isaiah chapter 8 verse 1 and 2, take a large scroll and write on it with a man's pen. 30, or excuse me, 25 times in the gospel accounts, Jesus will say, it is written. Verbal is talking about the words. And Paul says, every single one of them, every word. That's where plenary comes in. Verbal is the words. Plenary means all of them, each and every one. So what the Bible claims about its own inspiration is it's not general. It's not uh, general in the sense that these men had really good ideas. It's not partial in the sense that God gave them these ideas and then gave them the freedom to unpack them however they chose to do it. But rather what the Bible says about its own inspiration is that every single word is breathed out by God. And so, Jesus would say in John 10 and verse number 35, the scripture cannot be broken. In that passage, he had been quoting from the Psalms, and basically what Jesus is saying is that what is stated in this verse from the Psalms is true, Because this verse belongs to that body of writings known as Scripture, and the Scripture possesses authority so absolute in character that it cannot be broken. Why is the authority so absolute in character that it cannot be broken? Because Jesus recognized and Jesus knew that every single word of Scripture is breathed out by Almighty God. Now that implies then that the Scripture is an errant because a divinely inspired error is a contradiction in terms. If you have a divinely inspired error, then really what you have is someone who's less than divine because to be God is to be perfect and to be without sin and to be above and unable even to commit error. We cannot have errors in a divinely inspired document. And that's exactly what the Bible says about itself. Psalm 19 and verse 7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect. Psalm 119 and verse 160 says, The sum of your word is truth. And would it surprise you to know that this was the view of Jesus and the apostles? Let me give you some examples. Were Adam and Eve real historical figures? Or... When we read about Adam and Eve in the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2, are we reading just an allegory or a metaphor or a word picture of some kind? Look at Matthew chapter 19 and verse 4. In Matthew chapter 19 and verse 4, Jesus confirms the actual historical existence of Adam and Eve. Paul did the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 45 and 2 Timothy 3 and verse 13. Here's another one. What about Noah? Many there have been throughout the, throughout the ages who have looked at the account of Noah and have said there is no way that we could actually be talking about a global flood. 
Maybe Noah was a real person, maybe Noah was not a real person, but there's no way that what the Bible says in Genesis chapter 6 could literally and actually be true. Look at Matthew chapter 24, verse 37 to 39. And look at 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5, and 2 Peter 3 and verse 6. That's Matthew 24, 37 to 39, 2 Peter 2, verse 5, and 2 Peter 3 and verse 6. And what you will find is that both Jesus and the Apostle Peter believed, number one, that Noah was a real person, and that, number two, the global flood was an actual historical event. What about Sodom and Gomorrah? Read Luke 17, verse 28 to 32. In Luke 17, verse 28 to 32, Jesus affirmed the reality of Lot and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. What about the parting of the Red Sea? Surely that can't be a literal and actual thing. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 4. The Apostle Paul confirms that that actually happened. What about the story of Jonah? Read Matthew chapter 12, verse 39 and 40. And Jesus will tell you in Matthew chapter 12, verse 39 and 40, that Jonah was an actual person who actually and really was swallowed up in the belly of a fish. Jesus believed that it was a historical event. Not only do the Bible writers, uh, not only do, I'm sorry, not only do, do Jesus and the apostles confirm in a number of different places the inerrancy and the perfection of the Bible, but it's also, I think, interesting to note that the Bible writers never criticize one another. They never denigrate the, writing, the, the, the writings of other parts of the Bible. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15 and 16, the Apostle Peter references the Apostle Paul and says that his writings, though they may be difficult to understand, some of them are Scripture. We talked about 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 18 where Paul takes an Old Testament passage and a New Testament passage, puts them together and refers to them as scripture or Jesus quoting David in Psalm uh, in Matthew 22 or Peter quoting David in a number of other places in Acts chapter 2. When the speakers and the writers of scripture refer to other scripture they refer to them not just in a way that legitimizes and and confirms their inspiration, but they refer to them in such a way that they are not trying to criticize them, but rather they're showing their fulfillment and they're using them as a way of laying a foundation and fortifying the claim that they actually happen to be making without contradiction. What about contradictions, by the way? Let's talk about them for a moment and then the lesson will, will, will draw the lesson to an end. We know that as we talk to people and as we live in this world that we have those who are going to look at the Bible and say there's really no way that we could read this thing literally. There's no way that it, ha that it could be true. There's no way that everything that it says could actually, actually be authoritative because, well, well, we know what the Bible says about itself. We know that the Bible says that it is, it is completely and utterly and totally inspired and therefore, it is completely factual, without error. But then what about contradictions? Let's define a contradiction first of all. A contradiction basically is defined this way. Something cannot both be and not be. That seems pretty simple, right? 
You can't both be here and not be here at the same time. But let's add to the definition. We're talking about a Bible contradiction. What we're talking about is something that has to do with the same person, uh, the same place, or the same thing in the same sense and at the same time. Now, why does that matter? Take, take this for an example. Suppose I said Bob is rich and Bob is poor. Now, someone might say that that is a contradiction. How could Bob both be rich and poor? Well, you have to think about it. Are we talking about the same person? Are we talking about the same place? Are we talking about the same sense and at the same time? Maybe we're talking about two different Bobs. Or maybe we're talking about the same Bob, but we're talking about different kinds of his life and different times of his life. Maybe he was rich at one point, and now at this point he's poor, or the other way around. Or maybe we're talking about the same Bob, and maybe he's rich and poor at the same time, but in different senses. Maybe he is poor as it pertains to the things of this world, but he is rich as it pertains to maybe family or friends or things that can't be quantified in a physical way. You see, when we look at passages in God's Word, often, especially maybe in a debate with an atheist, you'll hear an atheist who will say, well, the Bible contradicts itself, and then he will quote passages that seem to contradict each other just on the face of it. But then when we stop and think about same person, same place, same thing, same sense, and same time, what we come to recognize is that when we look at the individual passages in their context, they actually don't contradict because they're not talking about the same person, place, thing, sense, and time. Let me give you some examples that came from the book Godless by Dan Barker. These are examples of contradictory passages that he has in his book. I want to read them to you and then you think about them. He says you have Exodus 20 and verse number 8. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And Isaiah 1 and with Isaiah 1 and verse 13. Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, and the calling of the assemblies, I cannot endure them anymore. And then Colossians 2 and verse 16. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or drink or in respect of a holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days. Do you see what he's done? He takes Exodus 20 and verse number 8, which says, remember the Sabbath day, and then suggests it contradicts with Isaiah 1 and verse 13, where God said, don't even bring the Sabbath day before me anymore because I can't endure it. And then along with Colossians 2 and verse 16, where Paul says, don't let anybody judge you in Sabbath days anymore. Is that a contradiction or is it not? Well, no, of course it's not a contradiction because in Exodus chapter 20 and verse number 8, we're reading, uh, we're reading about the commandment of the old law. In Isaiah chapter 1 and verse number 13, the context of that passage shows that what God is condemning is their heart and their uh, dishonesty and their way of life. And what he's saying is if you're going to continue living in the way that you're living, and if you're going to continue having the kind of heart that you have, then don't even bother with the Sabbath day because it doesn't mean anything. And then, of course, in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 16, just two verses previous, Jesus says, the old law has been nailed to the cross. So it's impossible for Exodus 20 and verse 8 and Colossians 2 and 16 to contradict each other because they're not even dealing with the same law. And yet these, are, these three passages are put together in a book written by an atheist trying to convince us that we should reject the Bible because it contradicts itself and shouldn't be taken seriously. Seriously. 
Here's another. Matthew 5 and verse 16 says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. And uh, then Matthew 6 and verse 1 says, Take heed that you do not do your alms before men to be seen of them. Those are put forth as contradictory passages, but they're not, of course. Because in Matthew 5 and verse 16, Jesus is talking about the fact that we are to reflect the light of Christ into the world. It's his glory, his light, not ours. And in Matthew 6 and verse number 1, Jesus is condemning people for doing acts of righteousness only for the sake of receiving recognition. We're not even talking about the same thing. Here's another. Matthew, uh, excuse me, James 1 and verse 13. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither does he tempt any man. Along with Genesis chapter 22 and verse number 1, it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham. Now that's supposed to be a contradiction, and maybe it is, unless we're talking about two different kinds of temptation. In James chapter 1 and verse 13, James is talking about seducing a person to do evil. But in Genesis 22 and verse number 1, Genesis, uh, Moses is writing not about tempting or seducing a person to do evil, but rather putting faith to the test. So, a contradiction is something that contradicts literally when we're talking about the same person in the same place or the same thing in the same sense at the same time. And all of these contradictory passages or alleged contradictions that I've read to you come from the pen of a person who has rejected God and wants you to reject him too. That's simply because he has failed to understand what an actual contradiction is. The truth of the matter is that there are no contradictions in the Bible. And that every one of these alleged contradictions, if we just stop and work our way through them, what we will find is that maybe on the surface they sound like they might contradict, but when we explore them more closely, they don't. They don't. Because they don't even meet the definition of what a contradiction actually would be. Now as we wrap all of this up, I want to remind you of, of, of where we started. We're told that we shouldn't take the Bible literally in this article by Mr. Loesch, but I want to suggest to you really what he meant was we shouldn't take the Bible seriously. And his reasons were because the Bible doesn't claim to be an errant. We know that's, that's false. The Bible says over and over again that it's inspired, and the Bible uh, references and the Bible upholds its own inerrancy. There's no such thing as a divinely inspired error. He suggests that reading the Bible in a literal or reading the Bible in a serious or true way misses the point. That uh, when we read the Bible, we're, we're seeing these inconsistencies. That he says. You see, he's assuming inconsistencies. And so he says the Bible is an inconsistent book. So therefore, if we take it as if it's literal or inspired or true, then we're missing the whole point of it. But, but that's not true because the Bible's not inconsistent. He goes on to say that most Christians through history have not read the Bible literally. Well, first of all, that's really beside the point. But also, also it's not true. Because what we know from reading the Bible itself is that the apostles and the early church, they took the Bible seriously. They recognized its authority. They recognized its inspiration and its inerrancy. And his fourth thing is that reading the Bible in this way undermines the chief confession of the Bible. 
And what he means by that is that God says that he uses human beings as the instruments of writing these words. And these human beings are just ordinary, fallible people like you and me. So, therefore, if we say that the Bible is inspired, if we say that the Bible is inerrant, then what we're really doing is we're totally denying the fact that God used people like he said he did. Because people, after all, are not perfect. But that's not true either. Because what the Bible says about itself is that though God utilized the pens of men, none of those words originated from the minds of those men, but rather they originated from God himself. So as we study our Bibles, as we live in a world of people who either are hostile against the Bible or maybe just don't understand it, we ought to keep in mind, number one, we ought to keep in mind where at least some are coming from recognizing that the sentiments of this article are not unique only to him, but rather there are many thousands of people in our country even whose views of the Bible are very similar to this one. We ought to recognize that. We ought to, number two, we ought to learn how to be able to work through those objections, how to think through them and how to reason through them. And then number three, we ought, to, we ought to be mindful and we ought to learn how to defend God's word, what it is, what it says, and why we have all chosen to heed it and obey it and apply it to our lives. The Bible is the word of God. From beginning to end, it is inspired, it is authoritative, it is true, it is real, and it's powerful. And what the Bible says is that if we will embrace, if we will appreciate, if we will believe and apply these words that we have within our hands that are inspired of God, that these words will transform us, that they will change our lives, and that they will help us to be the people that God wants us to be so that we can be with him in eternity. This morning, where do you stand? Are you willing to allow the, the words of God to change you? to mold you and shape you and to make you into the person that God wants you to be? If so, we would love to be able to help you to do it. We're going to sing the, the invitation song in just a moment, and it may be that there's someone here who is, who is ready to become a Christian, who is ready to devote their lives to Jesus Christ and to his service, to, to be baptized in water so that your sins can be washed away. Maybe this morning you are a Christian, but you've stopped taking the Bible seriously. Not in the sense that you thought, well, it's full of errors or it's not inspired, but just in the sense that you haven't been reading it and you haven't been studying it and you haven't been applying it as you should. Make the change. We'd love to help you. We'd love to pray for you and encourage you. Come forward and let your need be known while we stand and sing together.